kids podcast. <laughs> you can go slow. A kids podcast about. This is Sarah Jones Breaks It Down. I'm Sarah, and I'm here to help us better understand what's happening in the world. Why? Because as a journalist, that's my job. And this world isn't just filled with adults. Nope. It's our world. So every week, we'll talk about the stories that you may overhear some adults talking about, and we'll break it down. Break it down. down. Break it down. War isn't usually talked about from all different sides with kids. That's why we've spent the last few episodes breaking it down. We've talked about what war is and who it impacts. You may have seen war scenes in movies, but is that what it actually looks like? Tara Madison is a U.S. combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. No matter where you're at, it's a lot of waiting around for certain missions. And sometimes when a war is happening in one part of the country, the other part of the country is completely safe with no signs of bombings or guns or anything. Jenny Desjardins is a veteran of the Canadian military. While in the military, she served in Afghanistan and Bosnia. But now that she's retired from the military, she's a consultant. And she was just helping aid agencies in Ukraine a few weeks ago. I just finished my mission in Ukraine. And... um, You know, when you see Ukraine on TV, it is continuous bombings, it's um, destruction. Is that the entire country? Does the West look like that as well? No, the West is very safe. So the fighting, it's all in the East and in the South. So there, it's real war. So every day, they have something that is being uh, launched and look like the houses are destroyed and it's very dangerous. But in the West, like... Tenoblast in the West, it's safe, safer than Canada. So they don't have any fighting there for now. But that's just skimming the surface. So let's talk to some people who have witnessed war firsthand, whether as members of the military, peacekeepers, or civilians. Civilians are people who aren't directly involved with armed groups or the military. So how do wars begin? There isn't always a single moment, like in Ukraine when Russia invaded, or in Sudan, when the power-sharing agreement between the North and South expired. Sometimes the conflict starts and people don't even realize at that moment that what's happening is escalating into a war. For example, in 2011, a group of teenagers in a small Syrian city near the border with Jordan called Darat spray-painted some graffiti on a wall that read, quote, It's your turn, doctor. But Syria, like many, if not most countries around the world, is one where free speech isn't a legally protected right like it is in America under the Constitution. And usually that means criticizing the government or the president as the kids did in their graffiti usually gets people and their families imprisoned, killed, or disappeared. Ahmed is from Darar. He was just a kid when this all started. You can't really talk about it. It's a politics, anything about a sad family, anything about government, uh, fam, like you can't mention nothing about it. You can't really give opinion. You can't really mention it. Even you can't, like, you can't say like, you Bashar or, or like you government or whatever. It's, you know, you can't really say that. It's tough. It's really tough because sometimes they arrest people and they put them in jail. Not the 70, 80, and the 90, and the 2000. 
you go to uh, any prison in Syria, there's it's a ton of people inside. They never done anything wrong. They just spoke up. They just say something. So when the government captured the teenagers responsible for the graffiti, people took to the streets demanding their release. And the people that were saying, no, it's fake, it's fake. It's just in the sky. They are shooting in the sky. Don't worry about it. Don't go anywhere till the first person fall on the ground. They know it's real. But it was this reaction of the protesters to the live ammunition that made the world realize things were different this time. This wasn't just about the teenagers. This was about freedom and change. Uh, one of the protesters said, in Arabic it's called al which loosely translates in English as death is better than living in disgrace. So to show how much those people they have a belief in their message, to show how, how much those people, they're not scared from to die. Those people that were there, they were like, oh, okay, kill me. If you want to kill me, kill me. That's when Ahmed, that's when the world, saw Syrians were willing to die to see a change in their country that they felt would make it more equal for every citizen. But equality requires those who are in power to give up some of their power to empower others. But a lot of people don't like giving up power, even if it means equality. If a protest is happening, Friday is commonly a day for the protests in the Middle East. And every Friday, it was, it was a day where people will die. Because the regime, the worst things people hate is the, when a helicopter come up. Because when they are throwing those bombs, and that's really bad because when the bomb come it can actually hit like over a sixth floor or seventh floor building. It's a concrete building. It can be in the ground from that bomb. If you behave good, they, they kind of forget about you a little bit. But if you don't behave good, <laughs> they, they pull upon you or whatever. So like we were all the time protesting, so they used to hit us with bombs every day, every day, every day. And then stay in my house. I all the time sit outside and just look how the bomb is going down. It's just something you just used to it and you don't want to go inside the house. If you want to die and, and see how you're going to die. As a U.S. combat veteran, during her service, Tara spent most of her time on base in Afghanistan. Where I was at, it was it was a small base, and it was considered a blackout base, so there was no lights at night. But really, you just you had the same routine because there really wasn't much to do. You woke up, you either went to the gym or you ate or you did your personal items that you had to do. It was just a continuous cycle. But she could still hear blasts going on outside, beyond the walls. Just a really loud, like, boom. Uh, people yelling. You can hear shots being fired. So it sounds like what you hear, like, in the movies, just a lot louder. <laughs> Probably what's changed me 
the most is being more aware of my surroundings and just really watching and being more, oh, I don't know. Like hypervigilant? Yes, that is a good word. And in war, people die. You always have that feeling of being afraid, of not knowing like what's going to happen next or the next day. I did have a battle buddy that I lost, not when I was there, but he was actually stationed in Iraq back in 2009. And him and a couple of his battle buddies um, lost their lives. Well, in my small town where um, five people die, one of them in my family. Ahmed is one of the lucky ones. He and his entire immediate family made it out of Syria. But I remember the stories of two families I shared from the war that were far too common. One was of a young brother and sister who lost both of their parents and were being raised by their older cousin, who was still quite young himself. I also remember a mother who lost all four of her children when her home was hit by a chemical weapon while she was at work. Chemical weapons are illegal, but in life, there will always be people who break rules. At the end of this series, we'll talk about the rules of war and an international court that helps to hold war criminals accountable. And it just bunch of people, they bring their product and they sell it over there is where it's a lot of people walking around up there. It's kind of, you can say, as a bazaar. So usually people go every Sunday to that there and buy stuff from there. I remember where multiple times where people go over there and, and they start throwing bombs. And a lot of people got killed because there's a, it's a lot of people up there. But not all of the pain and wounds from war are visible. And what's your hope for Syria in the future? To be honest with you, the hope is gone. <laughs> Although there is a lot of violence and destruction and hate and lies, it can still bring countries together and communities together and unite them. Probably the most difficult day for me is also when I have to leave. When I have to leave and I, I have to say uh, goodbye to everybody that I was working with. In Afghanistan in 2004, I was working with uh, a woman interpreter and we have just one for the complete mission. So this woman, she was very, very brave. She was coming on patrol with me and she was putting her life in danger every day to make sure that women have a voice in Afghanistan to be able to speak to us. So for me, she was very, very important. And at the end, I have to leave and to let her behind because, you know, someone else have to take to come back. So for me, it was like I was not there to protect her anymore. But the good news now that she, she is in Canada. So at the end, it looked like uh, she was able to, uh, <laughs> to uh, join the Canadian population. Just to clarify, the interpreter who was risking her life, she was risking her life because the Taliban were still um, ruling. And uh, and that was kind of the biggest threat. Is that accurate? But uh, also because of the population, you know, because of the culture, because she was not married and she had to come to work with just men. So she didn't receive a threat just from the Taliban. She received threat from the other interpreter because the other interpreter didn't want her to work there because it's not the place of a woman to work. But this interpreter was welcomed by other local Afghans. 
the women were welcoming her. The women were happy that she was there to be able to translate. War, it's ugly and it's violent. But amid that are people who selflessly give to others. And humans, we're pretty resilient. So it's not surprising that some who have seen the ugliest sides of war still believe things can improve. Remember my friend Hazan Ibrahim? We spoke with him a little while back. He's a journalist from Syria. He still believes things may get better in the future. I always have a hope that the war in Syria will come to an end and there will be a democratic ruling where everyone will live in a peace and freedom. So now you know a little bit more about what wars actually look like. They're scary, chaotic, and can cause a lot of big feelings. And whatever you're feeling, or even if you don't feel anything, that's okay. The important thing to remember is that wars do eventually come to an end or a lull. Sometimes they end with a compromise or treaty, where the groups involved in the fighting agree to give and take. And sometimes they end because of a change in government leadership. They can only fight so long. But it's not for the rest of the world to tell the Ukrainians, stop fighting, you know, let the Russians have another 10, 15% of your country, let them blackmail you, and just, in essence, shut up and be quiet. We're not going to do that, I'm sure. So there may be a standoff at some point until at some future time things change. The very best scenario, this is my opinion, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, is that the Russian government changes. And here, while I've used the name Putin a lot, the truth is wars are not started by one person. They may ultimately make the decision to do so, but all governments, even authoritarian governments, rely on hundreds, in fact, thousands of people who are willing to follow orders, who are willing to say, oh, yes, I believe in that lie, even though really I know it's a lie because somehow uh, it makes me feel better, makes me feel more powerful, or it gives me more income because I'm a, an official of Putin, or maybe I'm a businessman and Putin has done me favors, so I have a lot of money, so I'll pretend I support him. Lots of reasons. It's not just one man. But if the government of Russia changed in, in a more democratic way, that I don't think that will happen soon. We could put an end to the war. Across the equator and sea, tensions are brewing elsewhere in the world. And it has watchers concerned. Things are getting tense between the Democratic Republic of Congo, also referred to as the DRC, and Rwanda. The two countries share a border in Africa. It's something you probably haven't heard a lot about in the news, or haven't heard people talk about. But on this podcast, we know that everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. So let's get into it. The DRC and Rwanda have had a rough go at diplomatic relations since the Rwandan genocide in 1994. That's when a lot of people trying to flee violence in Rwanda ended up in East DRC. Recently, the DRC has publicly accused Rwanda of supporting the M23 rebel group. It's the first time in 20 years that the DRC government has formally made such an allegation. And then on the other side of the border, 
Rwanda says the DRC fired rockets at it and that two Rwandan soldiers have been kidnapped and are allegedly being held by another rebel group in East DRC called the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, or FDLR. So analysts are afraid this could be a flashpoint. Do you know what a flashpoint is? A flashpoint is a point in time when an event takes a turn. So that's the moment that things escalate to a point of no return. And there are some reports that state tensions between Rwanda and DRC have now escalated to actual fighting between DRC forces and M23 on several fronts in a province of the DRC which borders Rwanda called North Kivu. We'll be watching this closely and keep you posted on what transpires. And let us know if you'd like a future episode focused solely on the DRC. Thank you for listening and for breaking it down with me today. If you have a question about what war looks like or the DRC, or if there's something else going on in the world that you want us to break down, write to us or record a message and email us at listen at Sarah Jones Breaks It Down is written and reported by me, Sarah Jones. You can learn more about me and my work at sarahjonesreports.com. Our show is edited and produced by Matthew Winner with help from Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Studios. Our executive producer is Jelani Memory, and this show is brought to you by A Kid's Podcast About. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found, and check out other podcasts made for kids just like you by visiting akidsco.com. Thank you for hanging out with me, and stay curious. <laughs> <laughs>